Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. I, for one, am excited about this episode because it allows me to use a pun that I wrote years ago and have never found a good use for. That pun I will reveal in the course of today's show. But first, I'm Ben. Really going to bait and switch us like that, Ben? That is hurtful. No, it's foreshadowing. It's bait uh, and switch if we don't get to that's it. That's true, but you know, sometimes we forget. I'm going to I'm gonna bug you about it. I'm be like, Ben, where's that pun? Good. I need that pun. <laughs> Give me that pun. Buddy system, keep me accountable. Who are you, sir? I'm Noel, your buddy in this <laughs> buddy system of fools. And there, of course, uh, as always, is our super producer, Casey Pegram. So today's episode touches on a lot of things. It touches on art. It touches on surrealism. It touches on the mouse, capital M. You know what else it touches on? What's that? My heart. Oh, that's sweet, man. And I think it's sincere too, right? Oh yeah, always. I'm nothing if not perpetually sincere to a fault. (laughs) So Salvador Dali uh, should be well known to anyone, even people who don't consider themselves for some reason or another fans of art. Salvador Dali is perhaps the most famous surrealist in modern history. Yeah, right? I mean, you should know him if, if not only just for his mustache. Yes, yeah. And uh, while we're while we're on the uh, subject of facial hair, very quickly, thanks to our good friends over on the Ridiculous Historians community page who specifically requested that we talk more often about our facial hair. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know either because, you know, I thought our French mustache episode was pretty good, you know. What else is there to say? 
about facial hair? About our facial hair in particular. I guess we'd have to do some changes, do some updates or That's something. That's not going to happen. Well, I, I don't know, man. I, if we have to – one of the interesting things was the idea of having to disappear. Like if we had to disappear, we, we'd probably end up changing our facial hair. But you, you can only use that move once. Yeah, then you get into uh, – you know, the thing is don't believe – what you see in fiction, fake facial hair never works for a, a long-term disguise. No, absolutely not. It always looks uh, just that. It looks like fake facial hair. You need the genuine article if you truly want to uh, stage some sort of grand escape. But we're not talking about our facial hair today. We're talking about somebody else's facial hair. Uh, b- barely, in passing. <laughs> right, right. Salvador Dali, uh, one of the most uh, famous uh, artists of his day, and one of the most famous mustache rockers of all time was approached by another fan of the mustache, a fellow named Walt Disney in 1945. And Walt Disney came to Dali uh, with, a, with a pitch, right? He pitched him on something. He did indeed. Uh, but before we get into the specifics of that pitch, we should talk a little bit about Disney and Dolly's respective childhoods and kind of what led them to become the uh, the geniuses that they ultimately mm-hmm. did become. Yeah, they had a lot of they had a lot of parallels. They were actually born in a relatively uh, similar time, right? They were born three years, almost three years apart, so they were around the same age range. But they were born in different parts of the world. They both were coming up in this game called Life in the 1900s. And when you think of Salvador Dali and you think of Walt Disney, other than the fact that they're fans of mustaches, uh, they may not seem to have very much in common. But as you said, Noel, if we look a little deeper into into their professional lives and to their artistic inclinations, we see that they – actually had a lot in common thematically. Yeah, they both grew up in very small towns. Um, they were sort of big fish in little ponds. There wasn't a whole lot going on um, in terms of like the arts or any kinds of culture in these towns. Uh, Disney was born in Chicago, which would have been great, but he actually grew up in uh, Marceline, Missouri. Marceline, Missouri. And Salvador Dali, on the other hand, spent his youth on a small rocky coastal town of uh, Costa Brava in Spain, um, which was uh, near another place where he spent some of his youth, which was a fishing village called Cataques. Yep, yep. And Walt Disney is the elder, though not by much. He was born on December 5th, 1901. Dali was born on May 11th, 1904. And as pointed out, on WaltDisney.org, of all places, uh, the two men had some common parenting themes when they were growing up. Their fathers were described as domineering, uh, but their mothers were deeply affectionate and warm. This is sadly not an unfamiliar situation to a lot of people listening to the podcast today. They always felt like dreamers, you know. What's how's that old saying go in English? Walking around with your head in the clouds. They were they were those sorts of people prone to flights of fancy. But they were also very driven figures. So without 
making the entire podcast about Walt Disney, it's important to know just how driven he was and how driven Dali was. Disney was the cartoonist for his high school newspaper, which sounds like a cool job. But while he was doing that, he was also attending, in addition to attending high school, he was attending night classes at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. Talk about an honor student. Yeah, it's almost like by the time he finished high school, he was firmly um, educated uh, and ready to kind of jump right into a career as uh, a cartoonist and elevate that uh, to what would be essentially a very new art form of the time, which was animation. Dali was also no slouch when he was a youth. Uh, he had his first public art show at the Municipal Theater in Figueres, uh, and that was when he was just 15. And then he later, a couple of years later, would enroll at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Madrid, and that's where he kind of started to develop his rep reputation as not only an incredible artist and innovative thinker, but also a very eccentric personality, which was a big part of his brand. Mm-hmm. And... Because they were both unorthodox, because they were both pioneers doing new things, they faced a lot of initial uh, bumps in the road, a lot of speed bumps, a lot of obstacles. You know, Disney was uh, a groundbreaking animator and Dali was uh, a genius fine artist who was just notoriously weird. He was a weird dude. Disney focused on stuff like developing new technologies for um, audiovisual equipment, right? Yeah. Him along with his uh, partner, Ub Iwerks, developed things like the optical printer, which allowed you to insert, you know, animation, like compositing things together. It was basically the earliest analog version of After Effects, where you could take different elements and put them together, whether it be, you know, things that were filmed in the real world and combined with, like, cell animation, uh, like you would see in bed knobs and broomsticks, for example. That was all the result of these crazy inventions that he and Ub Iwerks came up with together. Dali was more more of a creative kind of innovator and he was pushing form. He was pushing kind of the idea of what art is and uh, was part of the surrealist movement, which was an offshoot of the Dadaist movement, which was like the idea of anti-art, you know, art like like Marcel Duchamp and his uh, Armut, you know, toilet bowl that was literally just the idea of art can be whatever I say it is. Uh, it makes me think of this uh, big thing that's making the rounds right now. The banana. The banana taped to the wall, which is this idea that this idea is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, but the banana itself is ephemeral and replaceable. And it's really funny. It almost, not to get too off the subject, but it makes me think of like memes because really the idea is what is proliferating and people are reposting it and turning it into different forms. And, you know, there's like a, a silver Kanye, like with, uh, like as, as a piece of um, duct, duct tape. tape over the banana. It's just become this, like taken on a life of its own. So you could say initially, oh, that's a really BS idea. But then you start to see it really, like, infiltrate the zeitgeist in an interesting way. What do you think about that, Casey? I, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think it's part of um, almost a sort of meta art idea. You could look at somebody like uh, Damien Hirst or maybe Jeff Koons who are sort of, you know, their, their pieces sell for millions of dollars, but they're almost about a commentary on the art world and how it's all just money and it's all just kind of rich people sort of almost laundering their money or or protecting their investments, their assets by by buying art, but it's sort of no longer about just that experience as a human being of seeing a piece of art and like having an emotional response to it. 100% agree with you there, Casey, because because there's there's a commentary about process, right? And so many 
quote-unquote avant-garde artists have made their fortunes and their careers by essentially proclaiming the emperor has no clothes, the emperor in this case being the value assigned to art or the, the illusion that there is a quantifiable static value. And a meme itself, while we're on this, uh, a meme technically is just an element of a culture or system of behavior. A meme started as an idea, you know, and now we call what we call memes are kind of a genre of, of the, the larger concept of a meme. And one thing that really stands out to me for what you're describing there, Noel, is that Dali, I would say, had this mission not just to redefine what visual art is, but to blur the lines between art forms that were usually considered distinct and separate, right? So he he would say, you know, he would love jazz. He loved improvisational jazz. And to him, that was a kind of painting. And I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah, I agree. And and, and I don't want it to sound like I'm saying that Dali was doing this overtly conceptual stuff, because if you look at Dali's work, it is very pleasant and intriguing to look at. And it gives you all kinds of ideas. And it's not a banana tape to a wall. It is very masterfully imaginative imaginative landscapes and like, you know, the melting clocks and these kind of worlds that he created, uh, which is kind of what made him have a lot in common aesthetically with Walt Disney because Walt Disney was all about creating that stuff too. And you never really pegged Disney necessarily as being someone who'd be a fan of surrealism, but as his career progressed, and I think he started getting a bad rap for pushing, um, you know, commercial work over artistry. I think he started to, you know, get a chip on his shoulder about that. And that is what led, um, you know, we're skipping some stuff here, but you all know what happened with Walt Disney. He became the most influential, important person, probably the history of cinema, honestly. I mean, that's arguable, but at least in terms of like really pushing animation to this massive mainstream explosion, um, he had hits with things like, you know, Snow White adapting fairy tales into uh, these lush, beautiful animated films that made lots of money and got people just hooked on animation. Um, but it got to a point where he wanted to do something a little more innovative and interesting. And with Fantasia, where he started incorporating much more kind of surreal imagery without dialogue, just synced up to music, that was when he really started to be like, okay, I want to push the envelope of creativity here. And that kind of coincides with around the time that he met Salvador Dali. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. 
There's some background that I want to provide here uh, before we get to their meeting. So we know that they had initial uh, skepticism. Let's say that. I'll be diplomatic and call it skepticism. But we know they also proved themselves and they started acquiring uh, mainstream notice and acclaim. Uh, Dolly's early work was praised widely, as was Disney's Silly Symphonies. These were the short form animations that functioned as experiments or proofs of concept for some of those technical uh, innovations they were making. And as these guys continued their careers, they had uh, a brief mention where they first they first became aware of one another, if not physically meeting, and that was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the MoMA, in 1936. Dali had a couple of different pieces on display in an exhibition called Fantastic Art, Dada, and Surrealism, and in that same exhibition, there were two cells, animation cells, from a short film by Disney called Three Little Wolves. Fast forward, next year, 1937, Salvador Dali visits Hollywood for the first time. And he says, you know what, I want to, he's always trying to find new formats, new mediums. And he says, you know what, I want to make an animated film. I think this can really uh, bring the metaphysical to this concrete, observable, experiential place. And he writes to André Breton. Uh, Casey, can you check me on that? Yeah, it's uh, André Breton, a uh, great uh, surrealist writer. Highly recommend his novel, Nadja. Breton, Casey on the case. Thank you, sir. Dali, in his, in his letter to Breton, says that surrealism's influence has become so enormous that even creators of animated cartoons are proud to call themselves surrealists. And I have come to Hollywood... And I am in contact with what he called the three great American surrealists. You ready for this list? This might be surprising. The Marx Brothers, Cecil B. DeMille, and Walt Disney. For a lot of people, it would be strange to hear Disney lumped in with those. It's true. Um, but we have to remember, too, how new this kind of animation was. And another another uh, couple of influential folks that would have been lumped into that would have been um, Tex Avery, for example, and Max Fleischer, who were, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of these um, from the Inkwell cartoons. They're black and white. There's one, it's like an early example of rotoscoping where they take the dance moves of Cab Calloway yeah. and like map them essentially, I don't know, this is a rudimentary way of describing it, to the movements of this really weird ghost who does this kind of like Cab Calloway type dance. Betty Boop is in it, uh, and that's all like in the early 30s, if I'm not mistaken. So that's like uh, pre- 1920s. Yeah, 20s even, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, just to get the chronology down, Disney made a huge splash with uh, Snow White, which came out in 1937. And there are some folks that actually conjecture that Disney and Dolly may have even met as early as 1937. Um, but it was then he followed up by Pinocchio in 1940, and then that Fantasia, which was uh, in production concurrently with, with, uh, with Pinocchio, um, and and that came out in 1940 as well. Yes. So Disney is known for employing European artists because he likes their aesthetic. He also 
is a voracious collector of art books, of books of fairy tales. And he's been doing that since at least 1935. And he keeps a library of these to uh, inspire his artists. And years later, he's read The Secret Life of Salvador Dali, which is Dali's autobiography. Disney not only sends his copy to Dali asking for his autograph, but he also says, hey, you know what? We should hang out. We should be a crew. We should collaborate. Come to the Walt Disney Studios. So there are conflicting reports. The um, different narratives you'll hear. Uh, Noel, you mentioned there was a rumored meeting before – 1945. In early 1945, we do have a confirmed meeting at a party in Hollywood. Now, regardless of when they physically met, whichever narrative ends up being true, they already were so aware of each other and they they had mutually agreed on their camaraderie and their common cause. This friendship is supported by hard evidence, by primary sources. They sent each other fan mail, which I think is so sweet and so cool. You can see these letters where they're just, they're like, you're the greatest. No, you're awesome. I love what you're doing. And those kind of friendships are amazing. It's super interesting. I would have thought that Dali might have turned his nose up a little bit, being some such a out there kind of thinker and, uh, and and visionary that he might have been like, oh, Disney and all this commercial stuff and the seven dwarves and all of this like, you know, big Hollywood money stuff. He might, that might have not been for him, but it's cool that he recognized the innovation and brilliance behind what Disney was doing, even though it was obviously very commercially successful. Um, not that Salvador Dali wasn't also a pretty wealthy man at this point, just because of his influence on the art world as well. He was definitely a a superstar in his own right. And here is where we enter into a bit of speculation because these guys, 100% on board, no reservations. And we have to wonder how their collaboration would have proceeded were it not for World War II. Because as, uh, as World War II is at its fever pitch, uh, they, you know, it stymies their abilities to collaborate or their opportunities to do so. And then in 1945, Walt Disney, talking to Salvador Dali, asked him to design an animated short straight from the mind of Dali to be part of this film that would be kind of like Fantasia. And and it's tough to, you know, I think it's tough for us uh, in the modern day to really understand how amazing and just out there Fantasia was in 1940 because we all grew up with this mm-hmm. uh, extended flight of fancy. I love I love the whole thing. I do too, and it still holds up uh, brilliantly and is is pretty terrifying in some uh, sections. There's the whole night on Bald Mountain with the crazy demon coming out of the volcano thing. I mean, it's really some some pretty dark stuff. Uh, and then of course it goes into like you know parts with fairies and woodland uh, kind of uh, spirits and all of that. And then there's, you know, the whole the hippos, the hippos and, and all of this uh, kind of stitched together by the soundtrack. Right. And um, not to get too off course, but it's always fascinating to me how he was able to figure out how to sync these hundreds and hundreds of, of you know, hand-drawn animations with the soundtrack. Because mm-hmm. you have to hit these beats, these marks, right. absolutely perfectly to, to make that work. And it just syncs up just like uh, absolutely flawlessly. Um, and so you're, you're right, Ben. It absolutely was uh, a work of surrealism in its own right, and he wanted to keep doing stuff like that. 
Yeah, and shout out, I, I don't want this to get lost, shout out to my favorite character in Fantasia, Chernabog, the demon from uh, Night on Bald Mountain and Ave Maria. Uh, that is still one of my favorite sequences of animation. So Dali agrees, of course, his best bud, a mutual admirer of his, uh, wants to work with him. Dreams do come true, it seems. So Dali goes through the extensive Disney music library and he says, okay, let me find, you know, Fantasia rules, let me find a song uh, that will inspire this visual element. And then he chooses a ballad by Ray Gilbert and Armando Dominguez called Destino because the title, the Spanish word for destiny, really, really speaks to him. I wonder, can we play just a brief clip of that to let everybody get a get a handle on what we're talking about? So for a, uh, let's see, I, I don't want to spoil this for people, but uh, you can you can hear the song, Destino, it's easy to find, and you can also, you can see the storyboards that Dali worked on, but don't do that just, just yet. Uh, let's get to the rest of the story because World War II is still going on, but Disney is still working, right? Yeah, as is Dali, as a, essentially a, full-time employee of the Walt Disney Company, at least for a time, where he's showing up to the studio uh, every morning at around 8 a.m. and working nonstop on the storyboards you mentioned until around 5 or 6 o'clock at night. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Disney says, okay, I'm having a tough time making these feature-length films, but I need to keep the studio afloat, so I'm going to make package films. And uh, these package films are things like The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, uh, which is one of the the last ones of that iteration in 1949. But there were five others for a grand total of six 
After 1949, they go back to features and they famously create Cinderella. But Disney, this is interesting. He saw that Fantasia could be a viable thing to bring to the public and he wanted to uh, he, he wanted to try to focus on those package films. So it wasn't just uh, a financial concern. It was a, an artistic, an aesthetic concern. Ultimately, he wanted to take the public perception of animation and change it from something silly, something Steamboat Willie-esque, to something that would be considered high art. And we see this with uh, different formats of art throughout the ages. Like there was a time when novels were considered, you know, low and not uh, not particularly respected. What do you think podcasts are going to fall on this continuum? Uh, how will history <sighs> regard our uh, our medium, Ben? Like radio, maybe? I, I don't know. I've been keeping an eye on blogs. I want to see what happens to blogs because you remember before we got into this business or even, well, um, right around the time uh, we were we were seeing peak blog inundation and everybody was a blogger, right? If you read my blog and now, you know, many, many people are podcasting, which I think is great. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the crystal blog for that. That's uh, good, not man. worth it. I was absolutely worth it. I, I, got, I got a chuckle out of this old uh, shriveled Grinch heart. So, so you have a you have a big heart, Noel. Uh, so what? Um, you have the heart of a lion and a lifetime ban from the Atlanta Zoo, right? It's funny, man. That's, 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 I didn't write just, that you're, one. You're the on fire. One, the funny ones are not written by me, uh, but. We can understand that, you know, he's this guy, Disney, he is an artist, he's a visionary, and he's saying, hey, the money is great, and I need the money, but also to feed my soul and to uh, garner the respect that I feel this deserves, we need to start thinking of animation as an art form, not just something entertaining for children. But he's still he's still having a tough time. Have we talked about too how a lot of his employees were drafted into the military during this time? No, but great point. We yeah, have to, yeah, and not to mention that another way that they made money was uh, I don't know exactly how the the money changed hands, but I imagine they would have had to get some government funding for those propaganda films. There's a really interesting oh, period yeah. in Disney history where they were making like there's the in the Führer's face where it's like if the Führer says "V is the master race," the Kyle right in the Führer's face, and I believe that's starring Donald Duck was the star of a lot of those yes. uh, and they're really fascinating and by the way if, if anyone and you you uh, and Casey as well find yourselves in San Francisco I highly recommend visiting the Disney Family Museum it's not connected to like the Walt Disney Company it's strictly f from the Disney Family Trust so it's very much a lot of the things that Disney Company would kind of tend to disown or not want to like talk about like these propaganda posters sure. and films so you can see a lot of the original posters for these uh, there in addition to a lot of like potentially problematic merchandise that might have come out. Like Song uh, of the South stuff. That kind of stuff, exactly. Yeah. And also you have like scale models of uh, his theme parks and a lot of the animatronic uh, imagineering kind of innovations. And they actually have there that optical uh, printer that we talked about. Um, it's either a recreation or it might well be the actual thing um, there in the museum. So I highly recommend checking that out. And you can get a – I don't remember seeing any of the Dolly stuff there, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was and I just missed it. And we do want to warn anybody who hasn't seen the World War II era propaganda films from Disney. They do contain blatant and offensive uh, racist stereotypes, uh, particularly against uh, German and Japanese people. That's right. And uh, just, just gird yourself before you see that. 
Well, folks, you may be asking yourself, why is Casey talking all of a sudden? Well, it's because we have reached the end of part one of this two-parter on Salvador Dali and Walt Disney. And a little peek behind the curtain, we recorded this episode. We really enjoyed it and decided to make it a two-parter because it was kind of long. And then we forgot to uh, record the intro-outro that would be necessary for all those pieces to fit together. So you fine folks out there in podcast land get to hear me kind of uh, stumble my way through an outro for a change. So first and foremost, uh, thanks to all the ridiculous historians for tuning in from week to week as we do this goofy program. We're, uh, we're a little mystified, but, you know, happy that you seem to enjoy it. You can join the conversation over on our Facebook group, Ridiculous Historians. Uh, all three of us post there at least once in a while. You can write us an email. We are ridiculous at iheartradio.com. We always like to see what folks have to say. Sometimes we'll read things on the air, probably not as much as we should. Uh, you can find Ben and Noel individually on social media. Ben's on Twitter at Ben Bolin HSW. He's also on Instagram at Ben Bolin. Noel is on Instagram exclusively. He does not do Twitter, at least uh, not beyond being a lurker. And uh, Noel's Instagram handle is at HowNowNoelBrown. Thank you, as always, to our super producer, Casey Pegram. Whoa, that's me. Uh, that's awkward. Yeah, thank you to Ben and Noel. I have to, this is, this is fun. I get to say this uh, on the air. So, um, you know, we've been doing the show for, I think, a couple years at this point. It's been a real pleasure. It's been an adventure. It hasn't been much of a roller coaster. It's just been fun the whole time. I guess roller coasters are fun the whole time, too. But, you know, usually when people say roller coaster, they mean like uh, uh, highs and lows. But this has all been highs. So, yeah, thank you guys for uh, being just, uh, you know, being you. Uh, thank you, of course, to uh, Alex Williams who composed our uh, awesome theme music that you're hearing at the beginning and ending of uh, pretty much every episode. I don't think we've ever really messed around with that formula too much. Thanks to Gabe, our research associate, always delivering on uh, the great research that kind of fills in a lot of the blanks in these stories. Thank you to Christopher Hasiotis, here in spirit. Thanks to Jonathan Strickland, also known as The Quister, purveyor of the most cringeworthy segment in all of podcasting, at least before me doing this outro. I will be back at the top of the show on Thursday, and I will uh, I will still explain some of what's happening then, just for the people that are, for some reason, only listening to part two, but you folks who are listening to uh, part one, you get it, you know what's going on. And uh, as Noel is fond of saying, we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. 
Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.